I know I promised that we were going to be getting into the law of God more in detail, and we are. I promise. But see, here's what happened. We finished our wine series that we were piggybacking with Lafayette while they were doing theirs. And then Brandon told me what his next Sunday school series was. And I was like, oh, that's really good. And so we're piggybacking one more. But I promise, okay, I'm putting my foot down. We're doing God's law in the new year. I promise. We're going deep dive on God's law in the new year. I promise. I promise. But this, I think, uh, is actually a continuation of our series of the life of David. We're just moving on to the next thing. It fits itself more into the category of a Sunday school, I think you'll find. We're talking about David and Absalom, uh, which is great also because we just finished reading through that in the Bible reading plan. Did y'all notice that? We just went through 2 Samuel again, so it's fresh on everybody's mind, the whole saga and drama of Absalom. So what Absalom stands out, well, what should stand out to all of us about that situation with David and with his son is uh, the idea of revolution. Now, I'm, I'm calling this, I don't know what Brandon called this, I'm calling this unrighteous revolution because every time, no matter what, without fail, revolution is unrighteous, okay? Now, let me just say that again. Every time, no matter what, without fail, revolution is is unrighteous. Why do you think that is? Now, some of y'all just probably went in your head, but I thought the American Revolution was righteous. Yes, because it wasn't a revolution. The, revo- the, the American, air quotes, revolution should be better understood as a war for independence because their magistrates neglected their duty, and then the American colonies appealed to the lesser magistrate, which is a doctrine you can read about more from Thomas Locke, or other people of that time. If you want to read some cool books, um, you can look up some things like that. In fact, in fact, Thomas Locke is where we got the phrase life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I don't have time to go into that. I think Locke actually had it first as life, liberty, and property. God, I'm getting distracted. Okay, so listen. So if you go back, a better understanding of the American air quotes revolution is not as a revolution at all. It's rather a, a, a war for independence. Now, pop quiz, which one happened first, the French Revolution or the American? The American Revolution happened first. Why is that important in terms of history? It helped encourage others. It helped encourage others. That's true. But really what was going on is everybody else saw that something like this could happen in their countries. And a lot of other revolutions were triggered after the, uh, the American War for Independence happened. In fact, who was one of our primary allies in the American War for Independence? Do y'all remember? France. France. France was. And France, since they helped us for the American Revolution, which they didn't, I mean, if you go back and you read the books, they didn't really do much. They showed up with some boats towards the end and had some guys involved. They had a few French mercenaries that came over and worked with us, but by and large, France was not really like hardcore ally. The French wanted us to help with their revolution after the fact. Actually, the expression right and left in politics, do you know that we get that from France? Uh, because boiling up to their revolution, the conservatives were more on the right and the progressives were more on the left. The right and the left in their terms worked the same way. The extreme left were the ones who wanted that total flip-style revolution like France did. But that was a godless revolution. If you go back, in fact, the, towards the end of the French Revolution, they're going into the countryside and killing Christians 
because they recognized that they were, if they were going to have the type of nation that they wanted, which was a secularized state, they couldn't allow any person with a biblical conviction to live. And so they would not even just go after the ones inside the city, they would go out into the country, like out of the metroplexes of, of France at the time, out of Paris, into the country, burn down churches, kill the Christians in those towns. Like it was terrible. It was an awful thing. Revolution in and of itself is unrighteous. Why? Why do y'all think that is? Oh man, buddy, I wanted to have more dialogue before we just said it outright. Did you read my notes? God, all right, man. Okay, thanks. Good job, buddy. Yes, no, you're, that's exactly what it is. So authority, your governing authority is given to you by who? God's given it to you, right? And sometimes God gives us governing authorities as a form of judgment, right? That happens too. This is why the doctrine of the lesser magistrate is so important, and this is what makes the difference between the American War for Independence and the French Revolution. The American War for Independence, the colonies appealed to their local governors, their magistrates, their lesser magistrates to give them an opportunity to succeed, to walk away from the king of England. And then there's all kinds of, I think ladies, aren't y'all doing a bunch of George Grant lectures right now, ladies? Are y'all listening to a bunch of George Grant stuff? You started. <laughs> I think Rachel's kind of keeps me up to date on kind of what y'all are doing together. George Grant's phenomenal. Uh, the stuff like the, yeah, Stephen knows, like the dude's a stinking genius. And if you really want to feel embarrassed, just remember that halfway through one of his lectures, he's actually teaching 13 year olds. That's when you should be like, oh, I am stupid. I forgot how dumb I was. And now I'm reminded. But he does a great job of going through and teaching those things. And he's, he's laid those pieces out for us. But it's the, the, they're appealing to the lesser magistrate, to their local governing officials, in order to succeed from the uh, tyranny of the British Empire. And it's, there's a lot of stuff that we could go into, and I don't want to do that. So a revolution is an attempt to get away, to, to run away, to rebel against God's established order and his established leaders. Now, that, on, that doesn't only happen on a national level. Where, what other levels could revolution happen in? In the family? Yeah, you, uh, I believe they refer to it as adolescence. Um, where a, a revolution of sorts can kind of, I'm just joking. Like uh, our kids, whenever I look around like our kids, like our teen kids, the stereotypical teenager is rebelling against their parents. Like I think our kids are rock solid. I look at all of our teens and I'm like, yeah, we got this. We're going to be all right. They, these kids are doing great. So it's very exciting. It's amazing Christian families and covenant households. How about that? So anyway, um, but it could happen in a family. And it doesn't necessarily mean just your immediate family. It could be in a sign of a removed family. Y'all ever been involved in one of those family politics situations where suddenly somebody else is trying to get mama on their side? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? That could be a family revolution. What other institutions could deal with revolution? Can you think of any others? Like businesses? Yeah, businesses could deal with that. But businesses kind of don't have to deal with that as much because most businesses are, you know, functionally a, a kingship. Right? There's a CEO and he's just like, you're fired. And then the decision is made and over. Some of them are like the company owned or the employee owned businesses get a little trouble in situations like that and board run businesses. What, so but a business would be one. Can you think of any others that could deal with this? Sure. Churches deal with revolution all the time. We see that so often, right? Church splits are a thing that happens. Uh, what else? Can you think of any others? Schools. Yep. Pretty much any institution, right? 
pretty much any institution where a bunch of people get together and there's a leader can deal with some type of, of revolution. And we need to understand that that is coming from a spirit, okay? There is a, a spirit of, not to use charismatic terms here, but there's a spirit of revolution, <laughs> okay? Uh, but I mean that literally, because who is the spirit of revolution? It's Satan, right? He's the, he's the prince of the power of the air. Whenever we say we, we war not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, the powers and principalities that we're talking about is Satan and his agents. There is a spirit, so to speak, that happens there. So what I really want to do, okay, if you follow the trajectory of, of just about any revolution, at some point or another, the leaders of that revolution have uh, built a set of gallows. Okay, they've created a set of standards. In the French Revolution, it was literal gallows. Like, do y'all know what I mean when I say gallows? It's, it's actually, it's the thing that chopped people's heads off. That's a gallows, okay? Or it's the one that people are hung off, hung on. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. They're hung on gallows, they're chopped off on a guillotine. Thank you. Two G words got mixed up there. But yeah, so the gallows are what people get, get hung on, okay? In the French Revolution specifically, it was a guillotine. That's why I got mixed up. They built this massive guillotine in the middle of Paris. And uh, they started chopping people's heads off that weren't loyal to the revolution. Okay? I'm not making this up. Go, go read history. And guess what? Eventually, guess whose heads they were chopping off? The folks who built the guillotine. Like, it's, it's because that's how revolutions work. <laughs> Eventually, they eat the people that start them. Um, we saw that with uh, Haman. Remember Haman yes. and Esther? Haman builds the gallows because he's going to kill Mordecai. He's tired of him being around, and then God flips everything upside down, and who gets hung on the gallows? Haman does. Uh, this is a very, very common practice. So if you, if you pay attention, if you pay attention to these kind of things, you need to become more and more aware that revolution will destroy you. And so we as God's people want to make sure that we have wisdom to discern when it's a revolutionary spirit and when it's a war for independence type spirit, okay? You want to make sure that you are uh, wise. And the story of Absalom, I think, is going to give us a lot, of, a lot of understanding there. So if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 14, we're going to kind of just cherry pick along there. But uh, what's, the, what's the deal with Absalom? Let's, let's do the backstory. What's, what's up with Absalom? Can you all remember? How did, he, how did he get to where he is around halfway through 2 Samuel 14? Absalom, well, first off, there's Amnon and one of uh, David's daughters. Remember that story? Amnon had a lust for his sister. Remember this story? We just read this, so I'm just going to, I'm blowing through this real quick. Amnon had a lustful desire for his sister, and instead of repenting of it, he went for it uh, because he received wicked counsel to do so. Uh, He laid with his sister, and then he cast her out. And remember her words were, no, the second thing you would do to me is even more wicked than the first. Um, And he got rid of her. And then what happened? What form of judgment did Amnon receive from David for what he did? Nothing. Well, yes, his brother does go after him, but who's the person who should have executed righteous judgment on Amnon? It should have been the king. should have been David. But David brushed it under the rug. David didn't want to deal with the problems. In fact, David around this time has also got his own issues with Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite. Like he's not, he is an unrighteous leader. 
And so he's not executing righteous judgment according to God's law the way that he should be doing. So there's all kinds of things falling apart in the kingdom of Israel around this time. So Amnon does not receive judgment from the king, the authority, as he should. And then move forward a little bit of time. Uh, what does wind up happening with, to Amnon? Uh, Landon, you said it a second ago. His brother, well, it's not even really a war. It's more of just a of a slaying kind of situation. But yes, and the brother that killed him was? It was Absalom, right? Absalom took the law into his own hands um, and killed his brother. Now, that was also unrighteous. Why? Because the sword was not Absalom's to wield. It was David's to wield, and David was neglected to do it. Absalom wasn't even like a lesser magistrate that could have executed judgment and appealed to a different authority. He was just a prince under the king. He had certain privileges, but wielding the sword of judgment was not one of them. What did David do whenever Absalom kills Amnon? He he doesn't really do anything. Eventually he kicks uh, Absalom out. You remember that? He sends him into exile. Uh, But he's not actually dealing with the problem righteously that he should. Murder is not dealt with with exile. But it's, abs- it's, a, it's King David, again, abdicating from his role. And then eventually somebody comes back and sweet-talks King David into doing what? Letting Absalom back in. Man, come on, he's your son. Don't you love your son? Why don't you, come on, I mean, why don't you invite him back into the kingdom? Do you not care for your own family? Emotional manipulation. David brings Absalom back in, but he still has some restrictions placed on him. And then what happens? Do you remember? Absalom tries to summon Joab several times. Do you remember that part of the story? Absalom tries to summon Joab. What does Joab do? He ain't coming. <laughs> Joab's like, heck no, I ain't coming. You're, and Joab ain't that great of a guy in the first place, if you read the rest of 2 Samuel. But Joab's like, I'm not coming. And so what does Absalom do after that? He sets his fields on fire. That's right. Absalom's like, oh, he won't come see me? Go learn his fields on fire. And so he goes and lights his fields on fire. And Joab's like, why are you burning my stuff down? And Absalom makes his play. And he says, hey, have the king either kill me or reinstate me as prince. But he's got to pick one. He forced David's hand. Do you see that? He forced King David's hand in that particular moment. And what did David choose? Let him back in. Because David is refusing to enact on his judgment. When we've got David, we've got Joab, and we've got Absalom. By the time that we're around 2 Samuel chapter 15, all three of them are unrighteous. All three of them are refusing to obey God's law. It looks like out of the three, one is a Christian, not the other two. It looks like David probably is a Christian. So really, there's a lot to pick up from this, and I hope that you were able to follow with me as we just kind of blew through all of those things. But there's a couple of principles. If you want to dig in harder on this, I would recommend going back and rereading 2 Samuel 14 and 15 and maybe even 13 too, just to kind of get yourself caught back up on where we are. But there's a several principles that we want to drag out from, from just that. The first one is this. If you are a leader, which so fathers, leaders of households, um, business owners, leaders of businesses, um, nonprofit leaders, same difference, uh, a bo- servant on a board, okay? Like board servants. Am I going to say this? Yeah, okay, we're going to say it. Here's the, here's the temptation that a lot of... Um, people who serve on boards run into. Uh, they, they feel tempted to 
to not push because there's this secular idea that the board is just one organism and it comes to a voting consensus and then therefore that is, we must always support the board. We must always support the organization. We must always, no, that's evil. If what that board is doing is evil, Hey, buddy, holler if you need a hand. Oh, that was Bucky? <laughs> okay, we're fine. He's got five kids. All right. Um, but so, so if, if the board, right, if the board is doing something evil, then it's evil whether or not the board as a whole decided to do it. And so that Christian member of that board does not now say, I support the board. That's secularism. Okay? That's a secularistic idea. The Christian member of that board says, no or resigns. They continue to say no again and again and again and again, or they resign. And I would argue that the Christian members of those boards who are resigning because the board is doing something sinful should resign publicly. They should tell the board outright, hey, what you're doing is wicked, and I'm out. And I'm telling everybody that this is what's going down. And some people are like, you're throwing grenades on the way out? And be like, no, you're being righteous, and you should wage war righteously along the way. So anyway, so you see how all these different organizations deal with this. Now, the deal is, if you are a leader, you must, you must lead righteously, okay? Now, here's the problem with that. Everybody, nobody in this room would disagree with what I just said. Amen. We should lead righteously. But the rub comes in whenever the emotions get involved in the situation, when your emotions, when your, when your heart, when your feelings get wrapped up in it. Um, oh man, they're just, they're just having a hard time right now. Um, let's, let's, let's not give them the judgment that they deserve. They're, they didn't really mean to steal $100,000 from the organization. Um, let's just let it slide this one time. We'll deal with it quietly and, and we'll forgive all the things. See, that's not righteous judgment, Okay. That is unrighteous judgment because you've been emotionally manipulated by somebody. If you are a leader, God calls you to judge righteously. Don't let sentiment pull you in that direction. The other thing that would pull a leader in a direction of not doing righteous judgment is fear. Fear of what? Uh, Fear of rejection, fear of losing your job, maybe fear of losing your position of influence, right? Um, fear of man, generally, is what we could sum all of that stuff up. You're more afraid of what man would do to you than what God's going to do to you if you judge righteously. I'm going to get right back to you in just a second, I promise. But the deal that you have to, you can't be too scared. If you're too scared to do what's right, then you shouldn't be in a position of leadership anyway, and you should resign, because you're just not ready. Does that make sense? You're you're not ready to lead that way yet. And you should say, hey, I'm sorry, I I don't have the backbone to do this yet. The Lord needs to mature me more. I'm going to back out of this. So fear is one reason. Sentimentality is another reason. What was that, Jesse, you were going to say earlier? You don't want to judge because you fear judgment. Mm. Oh, that's a good thought. Maybe you don't want to apply righteous judgment because you know how unrighteous you are. Yeah. Amen. Get over it. If, if, we, if we didn't do what we were supposed to do because we're sinners, then we would never ever do what we were supposed to do. Do you know how many times I have preached a sermon and thought in the middle of the sermon, I have some repenting to do that I forgot about? <laughs> like, like that happens all the time. 
That's a normal thing. How many times have we disciplined our children and the whole time we're going through with our kids thinking, you are a tiny me, <laughs> you know, like I see me in you. That your, um, your authority is not dependent upon your moral superiority. Did you guys hear what I just said? This is a big deal and important for a lot of us. Your authority, if you're a leader, parent, father, uh, patriarch, head of household, um, business owner, uh, elected official, you know, leader in the church, whatever. If you're, you're, if you're a leader, your authority for judgment is not dependent on your moral superiority, okay? Um, now, kids, little kids have a real problem with this. You know what I'm saying? Like, little kids, whenever they hit around, like, four, five, six, seven years old, they become hypocrisy detectors. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, they're like, but you did that. You know, like, mom, why am I getting in trouble for this when you did that? When you, you told me you used to do this. You told me, you know what I'm talking about? Little kids do that. And so, parents, your job is to be like, hey, my authority in this situation is given to me by God not by my moral perfection. Do you get what I'm saying here? This is, a, this is a big deal that we have to get. And so the same principles apply to you being in roles of leadership. Hey, my ability to execute righteous judgment is not dependent, is not dependent on my perfect righteousness. If it was, we would never execute righteous judgment, and God demands that we do so. Are y'all following me? This is this is high-level stuff that we've got to get down in our heads here. So rule number one, don't let fear... Don't let emotion or, or sentiment keep you from doing justice. If you do that, you're going to create an Absalom, okay? You're going you're gonna to create an Absalom. Uh, if you refuse to do justice and you're a parent raising kids, what's going to happen with your kids if you refuse to do judgment to your kids? This is easy, low fruit. What happens to your kids if you refuse to do justice to your kids? they become terrors and no one wants to be around them, <laughs> right? Like if you don't discipline your children, then they become terrors and eventually they will grow into um, pink haired lesbo trannies that, you know, try to take over the world. I said it, you know, it's true. It is true. I guarantee you that the crisis that we are in the world right now is because it is a direct rebellion against authority against God himself Against, that's why we want the earth to be flat and all authorities to go well, because people didn't spank their kids enough when they were little. I guarantee you, there's a direct correlation here. Stuart, you sound like a boomer. I'm just saying what's true. I really am. Okay, so there it is with kids. What, what happens, um, churches, if churches don't do justice, what happens? If churches don't execute biblical justice, what happens? It's not a church anymore. Now, now you've, click, now you've moved into a club mindset. Um, no, but you're, you're called to, because now you've, you've let the, the tares not just come up with the wheat, but take over. You've refused to cut them out and throw them into the fire. That's not a biblical church anymore. And so if your whole model of church is just, oh, let's just keep loving people and keep bringing them in and it's going to be okay. You're not effectively ministering to people. If you're letting people on your membership roles without vetting them, without checking them for repentance, without doing any type of an interview system, our membership process is like four months long. Sometimes I'm like, why though? This is so much. But really, it's great. <laughs> it's great because it helps us 
keep the guards at the front and keep a biblical church as long as we possibly can. But we're called inside of churches to execute discipline. If we're not executing discipline, the tares take over. They're not just growing up among the wheat now. And we have lost the definition of becoming a church. What if you're a sheriff and you refuse to execute justice? You get St. Landry Parish. Right? Uh, let's just, I mean, we can say stuff, right? So let's say it. We are in the situation that we are in today in St. Landry Parish because we refuse to execute justice for about 50 years. And it was not just within the last 20. It's been going on for a long time. In fact, it got so bad to where a friend of mine, before he came to the Lord, got arrested for a DUI, and the trooper was driving him into the St. Landry Parish Jail to go lock him up. And as he walked in the front gate, he saw, uh, I think it was Bobby Guidro, it was whoever the sheriff was at the time, sitting down with, uh, the trooper saw Bobby Guidro sitting down with the, the young man's father, and he knew exactly what was about to happen. He knew that deals were being made, and he knew he was going to let off, and he was a state trooper. And so guess what that trooper did? He said, oh no, this is St. Landry Parish. I know what goes down in St. Landry Parish. He took him out of that building, out of the St. Landry Parish jail, drove him to Lafayette Parish, and booked him where he didn't have the connections. That's been going on for 50, 60, 70 years here in this parish. This is why we are so incredibly poor, so incredibly broken, so sin is running rampant in the streets. That's why we have, we rival New Orleans for our uh, violence, uh, our public violence acts, because we stopped doing justice a long time ago. If you, if you have a, a legal system whose job it is to enforce justice and they refuse to do so, it is only a matter of time until things fall apart. You're building Absaloms. And now, to, uh, who's connected? Y'all who are connected in St. Landry Parish, you know this. It literally matters who you know. You can get anything done in this parish if you know the right people. This is where we live. This is part of it. And we as God's people need to enact justice. Now notice I said enact justice, not enact bureaucracy. <laughs> okay, there's a distinction between the two, and that's not that kind of class. We'll get more into that whenever we talk about the law of God. But you guys see all of those different things. Do you all have questions about any of this? So warning number one, if you're a leader, do biblical justice. Do you all have any questions about that? Or any thoughts, comments about that? Man, I just said a lot of stuff, and y'all just rolling. All right, that's fine. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 25. <clears throat> now in all Israel, this is a hilarious verse. Do y'all remember this? Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. He was beautiful. People looked at him and was like, man, that guy's good looking. He must be smart. That is still a problem that we have today, right? Like, I mean, just be straight. It's a true thing. You see somebody who's relatively well-kept and good looking, and you're like, they must be successful. They, mu they have to be successful. I'm pretty sure that's how, like, I don't know, Gavin Newsom got an office in the first place. You know, like, it's, it's wild, but it's a, it's a true statement. This is the world. No one. He was praised for his handsome appearance. From the sole of his foot, I love this verse, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Everybody loved him because he was so good looking. 
And so they let him get away with everything, and they believed everything. Now, this only works on people who are simple, but it works. It works. If you are polished, right? If, you're, if your buildings are polished, if your presentation is polished and well put together, if you can put on the air of looking like you know what you're doing, you can deceive the simple-minded every time. Every time. And you can bring them right along with you. But the discerning people, the ones who have wisdom, will be able to see through it. Now, the benefit here is if you have the control of the education of the population, then you can make sure that everybody's simple. Right? Did y'all, did y'all pick up what I just said? Some of y'all are smiling. Some of y'all are like, I'm not sure. I'll say it a little slower this time. If you have the control over the education of the population you can make sure that everybody's simple and everybody goes along with the good show and the highfalutin looks. Do you see what I'm talking about? This is why homeschool and Christian education is so crucial, you guys. It's not, it's about unplugging your children from the matrix. I'm dead serious. It's about unplugging them from the matrix and building them into free and independent Christian-minded thinkers that can build the kingdom of God and move forward. This is, this is big deal, high level stuff. It's, we got to make sure that we're, we're working in this regard. We can't just be the simple people that are like, wow. Have y'all, raise your hand if you've been to Louisiana State Capitol. Have y'all been to Louisiana State Capitol? When you walk up to that building, is it not amazing? I mean, it really is. Like, it is incredibly, I remember walking into the state capitol for the first time and looking around and thinking like, this is in Louisiana? It's all marble. The walls are marble. The floors are marble. The columns are marble. The statues are like gold and silver. And, and like if you go into the Senate chambers, you can go into the, into the, uh, to the state representative side and it's okay. But walk in the Senate chambers and you will just be like, what is even happening? The reason that buildings are built to such a grandiose statement is to make the, the systems seem more um, unobjectionable. We're, when really uh, Louisiana is known, Louisiana especially is known even in all of the United States as one of the most corrupt political states that exist. We can get favors done anywhere. We can, we, that's like a common understood notion. But you walk into that Capitol building and you're like, I don't know guys, we're pretty important. You know, we, we seem to have ourselves together. This is a, this is, it's by design. And it fools the simple easily. I, I remember going in there whenever uh, the transgender bill thing was happening. And it was so stately that it made me feel smaller, even though I knew what I believed was right. But people who would oppose my ideas, I was, I was relatively intimidated. Not necessarily because of them. Well, I mean, they, they were put together and they had their suits on and they looked nice. But where I was, I felt out of place. Do you know what I mean? We, we've got to build Christians who have solid standing backbones who won't be intimidated by such things. And that's why we got to start from when they're young and help them stand up to people that, they, that we know are wicked and encourage them when they do so. In the right way, of course, in the godly way, not to start a revolution, but to start a uh, war for independence if and when one day we get the, granted such a thing. Okay, <clears throat> so any questions so far? What was the problem with them admiring Absalom so much? What was the real issue with it? I don't 
Well, he definitely had that problem, but he was doing it on purpose. You know, that's true too. It blinded them pretty significantly, and he was a murderer, right? But they were willing to look past all of that because he was such a, he was such a good-looking fellow. He wasn't admired for his justice. He was admired because he was good-looking. He wasn't admired for his, his devotedness to the law of God. In fact, Absalom, if you go and read the rest of the passages, you'll see that Absalom, in fact, pretended to be a Nazarite for a little while. He grew his hair out really long. He even had it weighed at one point. He was like, look look at my flowing locks. Like he was like, who's that blonde guy with the long hair and always had his shirt off in the commercials? Fabio. You remember Fabio? That's Absalom. You know, Absalom was Fabio. That's, that's kind of how it goes. He was like, look at how devoted I am to all of the goodness. You know, he's, that was him. And <clears throat> this is another point that we should bring in. And we've talked about this a little bit. So for leaders, leaders, if you are a leader, it is your calling. We're talking to fathers. We're talking to parents. We're talking to business owners. We're talking to board members. We're talking to whatever. Leaders, you have a responsibility to teach the people who are within your purview, people that you are responsible for, you have a responsibility to teach them justice, biblical justice, that they may apply it and apply it rightly. That's a huge deal. If you keep your people in the dark, if you don't teach them the depths of the scriptures, then they're easier to control. Do you get it? It's, a, it's, it's easier to manipulate them. But rather, what you want to do is you want to teach them all of the scriptures. That's an incredibly important principle. If you can keep people ignorant by not teaching them, if you can keep them pliable by giving them a, a fake conscience, then you can have them controlled. This is why entertainment is so incredibly important to the secularists, because it wows the simple-minded, right? It easily controls the simple-minded because they haven't been instructed fully in justice, true justice, by their tutors. We all get it? So principle number two, for leaders, teach justice to those in your purview. Teach biblical justice to your children. Teach biblical justice to your employees. Teach biblical justice to the people in your church, for those of you that one day may aspire to become church leaders. Does that make sense? Yeah. Y'all see why I'm doing this? I picked this one up because I was like, okay. But we'll get some more stuff later on. All right, I'm running out of time. That's okay. We'll do this. Uh, so then I'm going to just kind of sum this up real fast. Oh, can I finish today? No, it's not possible. Ah, okay. Um, I'm just going to kind of move through the rest of this relatively quickly, and then we'll kind of get to the rest. We'll kind of get to the conclusion. So remember, Absalom kind of brings himself back in. David restores him. And how, how did that happen? Absalom lights the field, Joab's fields on fire. Joab goes in. Absalom says, kill me or let me be restored. And David acquiesces, refuses to do justice yet again. And Absalom knew that about his father. Absalom knew that David wasn't actually going to do justice. He called him on his bluff. And David restored Absalom fully into the kingdom. And Absalom immediately went out to the gates. Do you remember this? Actually, before he did that, go to 2 Samuel chapter 15. This is really cool, actually, if you want to read through this with me real fast. 2 Samuel chapter 15, go, start at verse 1. It says, after this, this is after Absalom was restored, okay? After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. So Absalom gets restored, spends his prince money on hiring people to make him look more important. You see what I'm talking about? So he's, he's got his... Fabio locks, he's got his shirt off, I imagine, as he's riding through the... People are like, he's so beautiful! 
powerful. And he's got people running in front of him to build up his significance, his importance. He's paying that out. And Absalom used, used to rise early and stand by the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is such and such a tribe of Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated to hear you. You hear that, that play that Absalom's got in his voice? Your claim, you've got a good claim for the king, but you know what? He's too busy for you. He doesn't, he doesn't have time for you. Then Absalom would say, oh, if I were the judge in the land, then every man with a disputer cause might come to me, and I would give them justice. You know, obviously I'm really embellishing and thickening this up a whole lot, but you see how this could work. I imagine he said it much more subtly than that, or maybe he didn't. Maybe we were just fools. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And thus Absalom did to all of Israel when, who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Y'all see all those red flags? What are some that you notice right away? What are some that you notice right away with Absalom? Uh Uh-oh, this is going to turn into a problem. You see any? Shout them out. He obviously wants to be king. Oh, if I were in charge, right? What are some other ones? He's very proudful. He's like, I could fix this. I know I could. Yeah, I think that's a good red flag. Just notice um, that his revolution, which is absolutely what's happening because we know how it culminates, notice that it doesn't look like a revolution. It's very subtle, isn't it? He's not, he's, he's not like rallying the troops from the jump. He's, he's gathering people to him. He's, he looks like the, the sweet, loving, kind, hey, I, I, man, that... I wish the king had time for you today. He just doesn't. If I were in charge, I, I would do things a lot different around here. So, sorry, buddy, go home. Maybe one day I'll be able to help you. Doesn't look like a revolution yet, but that's absolutely what it is. You can see it start to happen. And can you see any other uh, moments that happen? Any other red flags? He's very ambitious, isn't he? He's early to rise. Do you see that? He gets up first light in the morning and runs to the gate. He's ambitious. He wants to intercept people for the king. Where's where's David? Where's David in all of this? David is, he's not even paying attention. He doesn't even, or he doesn't care. He's too distracted with his own selfishness. He's functionally abdicated his role. He's doing all kinds of things, but not the one job that he's supposed to do, which is securing the kingdom. And a revolution is about to hit and kill a lot of people in Israel. And David is checked out. Another thing that Absalom is doing, he's looking for hurts, and then he's promising to fix them. You see that? That's like, this is why, this, this happens in every election cycle. Have you noticed that? Here's the pain points. Here's how I'm going to fix the problems. Now, I'm not saying every election cycle is a revolution, but it kind of is nowadays. Have you noticed that? It kind of is. Um, but he's, he's dealing through all of this stuff. It's, it, he's looking for ways that he can go in and, and help the hurts. He picks them up and he adds them to his, his ongoing lists of David's faults and his issues. 
and the, the gates of the city. He's there every single day waiting to see all the people come through. And David is not paying attention. David has a negative campaign being run against him this whole time, and David's not even paying attention to what's happening. He's not dealing with it. In fact, he looks very distant, like he's unengaged, and doesn't care about anything that's going on in the particular situation. <laughs> David's on the roof checking out Bathsheba and he forgot about the rest of his job. Yeah, yeah that's a good thing to understand. So um, last bit. Oh, you know what? I want to review this and start over next time. We're out of time. Do you have any questions before we're done here? All right, let's pray and, uh, and then we'll begin uh, getting ready for worship this morning. Father, thank you so much that you're good and that you instruct us according to your word. I pray that we would, that we would push away the godless revolution and instead that we would pr- pursue you and your ways and your righteousness in all of our heart. I pray that this information would lodge itself into our brains, that we would enjoy it, and that we would receive it, and that we would be instructed by it. Lord, make us wise that we may be your people. In Jesus' name, and all God's folks said, amen. See you all in about...